when daily temperatures drop below 110 and school is dismissed at the end of each September here in Maricopa, I know there is one primary interest on the hearts of my family. And more so now that our son has moved out of the house. Now it's just me and the girls. There is one primary interest on the heart of my family when school lets out and the temperatures drop. And that is fall decorations. We are going to decorate the house. And it is an ordeal. We enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Except for the part where I have to get all the decorations down. Right? Because they're hanging in the, in the ceiling of the garage. But they helped me get them down. We packed it all into one box. I was really proud of us last year. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get it all into one box this year. But it's all out. Emily decorates the cabinets. The kids put leaves and fall decorations everywhere. It's great. We even have a little decoration on the, on the front table on our front porch. I'm afraid somebody's going to steal it, but hopefully they won't. We'll see what kind of neighborhood we live in in the next few weeks. Now, for some people, decorating the house is not your thing this time of the year. You might have other interests at the top of your list. For some people, it's football. Any football folks out there? No? Okay, you're in good company. I don't care about it either. For other people, it's pumpkin spice lattes. Now, I know we've got one folk. There we go, Antoine. Antoine's like, yes, that's me. Um... But our interests, they change. They change with the times, with the seasons. And human interests also change based on geography, depending on where you live. People living in a third world country couldn't care less about who Taylor Swift is dating or if the Packers beat the Bears. They don't care about how the Dow Jones is responding to inflation like we do. And we would think that it's absurd for someone living in a third world country to care about that. We would think it absurd to find a starving child wandering the streets of El Salvador, for instance, who cared more about American football stats than they do where they're going to get their next meal. It just wouldn't seem right, would it? Yet even our interests can be just as maligned in God's economy. That's what we learned today from God's Word. So the big question that we have to answer today as a church and as individuals is one asked by the Holy Spirit, I believe, by Mar- in Mark 8, 27-38. And the question is this. Are your interests aligned with God's? Are your interests aligned with God's? Jesus gives commands. He gives us Reasons to see this morning why and how many times our interests are not in line with God's. Almost 10 years ago, a study was done by Pew Research asking American adults the question, what are you most interested in? What are you most interested in? You might be surprised by the results. You might not be, but here they are. The highest percentage of adults in America, 70%, said they were most interested in health and medicine. That might actually be higher post-pandemic. I don't know. But this was almost 10 years ago. A close 61% said that community events... We're at the top of their list. Most things they're interested in. Community events. Science and technology came in 
at 59%. Government and politics came in at 58%. That might be lower (laughs) than 10 years ago. Religion and spirituality was 53%. That kind of surprised me. Especially considering that sports and entertainment and celebrities were almost 10% lower. Only 46% of American adults polled said that highest on their priority list of interest was celebrities and sports. That surprised me. And then coming in, 42% business, finance, arts, and theater. So we vary in our interests. Depending on where you live, depending on the weather, depending upon the time. But what we learn today in God's word is this. That God has a distinct interest in you. In the world. In humanity. None of these other things that American adults listed are at the top of God's list. Not a single one are at the top of God's list. So what is at the top of his list? Open up your Bibles there to Mark 8, 27. We start in verse 27. And we're going to read through 38. The Bible says that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. Verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes to the glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we open up your word, Lord, as we read it, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak and that we would listen. Give your word success in our hearts. That it would pierce us through. That it would go deep. And that we would hide your word in our heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you are thinking, Luke, you just preached on this 
about three weeks ago. You're right. I didn't preach from it, but I did. Uh, it was one of our many, many uh, passages of Scripture where we talked about the holiness of God in the church and the church fellowship and discipleship. And we talked about the human soul and its worth. So this will be a, a little bit of a reminder for you, but today we're really going to pick it apart and just going to dive into it. Now, you can divide this kind of in three sections. The first section is verses 27 through 29. Because it kind of shifts gears in verse, actually, actually 27 through 30. And then it shifts gears in 31 through 33, and then again in 34 through 38. So we could actually take these three pieces, and I could preach a sermon on each one of those sections, and emphasize certain things that Jesus is going to do. But I wanted you to see a big picture today, okay? I wanted you to get a big 30,000 foot overview of what's going on. Now if we look at verses 27 through 29, we see that the disciples distinguish themselves from everybody else. Jesus asks them a question, doesn't he? He says, who do the people, who do the crowds? Who do the folks out there say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And what do, how do the disciples answer? They say, well, they... Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're one of the prophets. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about who Jesus might be. He's certainly special, and they know that. He's different. He, he, he's not just a rabbi, not just another teacher. Even the crowds are getting that. Even though people are coming up to him and saying, Rabbi, good shepherd. At this point, people are starting to recognize Jesus is special. And people in your life, and you may be here this morning, you believe Jesus is special. And, and that's true, He is, but He's so much more. He's so much more. Now, the disciples distinguish themselves from other people by their profession of faith in Jesus. That is what they're saying about Him. Particularly about His identity. What is his identity? Especially Peter. Peter steps forward and he says, when Jesus asks them, he says, okay, the world is saying this, the people that, I've experienced, that have experienced me are saying this about me, but who do you say that I am? That's a great question. That is perhaps one of the most Pressing questions for every human being is this. Who do you say that Jesus is, but even more so, even more so, exponentially more important is, what do you do with Jesus? How do you treat Him? But Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ. The Christos in the Greek. The Messiah now, what does this mean? He either meant, scholars suggest that Jesus either meant one of two things. And that was that as the promised Davidic king coming in the line of David, David who conquered Goliath, who overthrew the Philistines, who delivered God's people, David would have said that God delivered his own people through David. But by Christos, by Messiah, Peter either meant that Jesus was this promised Davidic king who was going to conquer Israel's enemies, foreign and domestic, in the here and now. 
He either meant that or he meant that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, uh, Testament messianic hope. The one that was spoken about in Malachi. There is one coming after me. He's coming. The promised messianic hope. I believe this is what Peter meant, though, as some scholars agree, not in terms of a conquering king. That is, Jesus' kingdom could be rejected by people. Which is so ironic, because who couldn't reject Jesus' authority? The wind, the waves, nature, and who else? Demons. Demons. Jesus would roll up onto a place and there'd be someone possessed of a demon and the demon would cry out. What do we have to do with you, Jesus? So this is the ironic thing. Peter is saying, he's, he's seen all of this. He's seen the demons cast out and run. He's seen the wind and the waves obey Jesus, but he's also seen people reject him, just totally walk away and say, nope. I don't want that. I don't need you. So when Peter says, you are the one, you are the Christ, he means you are the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope that was extended out to God's people, but in such a way that as he, would, he wouldn't be conquering today. And this is something that Peter had to learn along the way, because even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Peter defending Jesus. It was something that he was going to learn over time. But Jesus would come again. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28, a second time, not in reference to salvation, that is when he comes again, a second time he's not coming to save. He's not coming to extend an invitation. He's coming as the conquering Davidic king. In power, in majesty, in glory. So he is coming in that way. But what Peter says, what he confesses Jesus as, is you are the promised Messiah. Now this is why scholars believe that Matthew's gospel adds a clarifying statement that Mark doesn't, just because Mark is so brief, right? Mark is so brief about everything. But Matthew clarifies that we understand that what Peter was saying, thou art the Christ, and then Matthew adds, the Son of the living God. To clarify that what Peter meant by the Christos was not this conquering dictatorial king who's going to wipe everybody out, but the Son of God, the Son of Man prophesied in the Old Testament. So it's not as though Peter's belief about the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry was way off center. He's on the right track, right? But he had not fully realized or understood Jesus' plan of salvation even though he did in fact understand Jesus' identity more than even the rest of his contemporaries, from the rest of the disciples. Therefore, what we learn from this part of the passage in verses 27 through 30 is that believing Jesus is the Son of God is simply not enough to save a person. Having Jesus' identity right, or even believing that he is in fact the person that the Old Testament Messiah is speaking about. 
No, salvation will require trusting Jesus. Not just getting his identification right. Now, even though Peter and the disciples confessed Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus tells them in verse 30, if you look there in your Bibles, He tells them not to tell anyone. It was not time for Jesus' full identity to be made known to everyone yet. But at least for the time being, it seems the disciples led by Peter were on the right track. They're doing very well. A plus. Until verse 31. Verse 31, it all changes. And this is so important for us to realize today. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now verse 32 says, He was stating the matter plainly when Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Boy, there's so much here that's going on. But in a nutshell, Jesus says, You have answered well. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records Jesus as responding to Peter and saying, You have answered correctly. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but our Heavenly Father revealed it to you. The same man that Jesus says, you have my identification right because God revealed it to you, and a couple of verses later, says to him to his face, get behind me, Satan. Isn't that interesting? Jesus drops a bomb on Peter and the disciples after they say, you, you're the one. You're the answer to all of our questions, all of our problems. You're the promised Messiah, the one we've been hoping for. Jesus drops suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection on them. The gospel. Suffering. Is this the way? Of salvation? To suffer? That the Messiah would suffer? Well, if you listen to Isaiah, yeah, it is. Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Now, this is major, and sometimes we skip over this. He was going to be, he was the great hope of salvation for his disciples. But they thought... They probably thought that the way Jesus was going to bring about this salvation was through what they considered the proper channels. The religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the keepers of the law. But he says, these three groups of people are going to reject him completely. These three groups of people made up of the Jewish were made up the Jewish high court. You have the elders who were the lay members of the Sanhedrin. You had the chief priests which included Caiaphas and Annas. And then you had the scribes. They were the professional teachers of the law. Jesus was called a rabbi. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He would go into synagogues and teach. 
He would go on the hillsides and teach. People considered him a rabbi. And are we going to say that the school of rabbis, the affirmed by God school of rabbis, are going to reject him? This is not good. His movement needs this type of credibility, this type of recognition by these influencers. All three of these groups would have been necessary to affirm Jesus' identity, identity and legitimacy as the Christ. So it's almost as if Jesus says to Peter, Very good. You're right. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to die on a cross. Wait a minute, I thought you were the promised one. Don't you need their affirmation? Don't you need to go through the proper channels? Aren't these people needed to be on your side for this to be successful? And Jesus doesn't simply say that He will suffer. Do you notice that? And that these people will reject Him. But what does the Bible say? He must. You see that in verse 31? Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. He must die. He spoke the matter plainly, the Bible says in verse 31 and 32. And Jesus didn't speak like this often. Do you remember? What does He usually speak in? Yeah, parables. He usually shrouds the truth a little bit. And then He has to explain a parable. You see what happens when Jesus speaks plainly the gospel? Powerful. Very powerful. It, it disrupts their entire thinking and their entire life. And that is the power of the gospel in our lives as well. In your life, in the life of your loved ones, in the life of individuals in the world. The gospel has the power to completely disrupt. And might I add, it must do so. It must disrupt it must change things up. It must confront you that you're a sinner. Sometimes we like to smuggle the gospel in when we, sh when we share Christ. We invite people to church. Folks, when you invite people to a small group, to, to coffee, just to talk about religious things, or to church, you better share the gospel. Even though it's uncomfortable. It's, it's the way that God has shown His interest in the world. He's interested most highly in this one thing, and that is the human soul. He's not interested as much in your popularity or how much your friends like you or your co-workers accept you. He's not as interested in that. He's interested in souls. That's how much He loves you. And that's why He sent Jesus to die for you. Because He doesn't care about your comfort this side of heaven. He cares about your everlasting rest. Because you're more than flesh and blood. You're more than an accident of random particles and atoms and DNA. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And so Jesus states the matter plainly and we must state the matter plainly with people. Do you like it when the doctor tells you this is going to hurt? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. 
I wish that every time I went to the doctor, they would give me that gas that they give people when they take out their wisdom teeth. And they go, okay, count to 100. You get to 10 and you're gone. Next thing you know, you're waking up. It's two days later. I wish that was the case. But sometimes they don't do that. And they say, this is going to hurt. Prepare yourself. Sometimes I would rather just not know. And sometimes in the human life, we would just rather not know the great truths of God. That we're sinners, that we need a Savior, and that sanctification is going to hurt. We should want to hear whatever God has to say to us plainly. Are you open to hear the matter plainly from other believers? Speak into my life. Tell me plainly. The gospel stated plainly will disrupt people's lives. It got Paul put in prison, stoned, run out of cities, left destitute, but he said this about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes. Now verse 33. Turning around, Jesus seeing his disciples rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. The New Living Translation renders this last phrase a little differently. You're not thinking about, you're, you're, you're merely thinking about man worldly things and not God's. It's almost as if you're halfway there, it's just not complete. I don't think that renders it well. I think the New American Standard and the King James render it very well. I love the King James. It says, Thou savorest not the things of God. Thou savorest not the things of God. You don't have a taste, an appetite for the things of God. There's something wrong with your taste buds, Peter. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't have your mind set on God's interests. They are not half on God's interests and half on yours. Your mind is not set on God's interests. Your mind is set elsewhere. In your own interests. In the world's interest. How can a person get Jesus' identification right and get his passion, his purpose, his plan wrong? Easy. People do it every day. People do it every day. Every time a Christian presents Jesus simply as a person whose identity needs confirming. We ask people all the time, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Just like Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter got an A plus on the identity question, but he bombed the quiz on the gospel. He bombed it. We have this story preserved by the Holy Spirit before us today so that we don't bomb the quiz. Knowing Jesus' identity is great, but if you don't accept what He did for you on the cross, if you don't embrace the suffering and the shame and the rejection that He experienced and also the rejection that you're going to experience as a follower of Christ, if you don't embrace what He endured to forgive you for your sin before the Father, knowing His identity is useless trivia. Jesus said elsewhere, even the demons believe and tremble. And then verse 34, we get back to the resurrection. And I know you've waited a long time for bullet points. Here they come in just a moment. In verse 
34 through 38, he gets back to the resurrection. In verse 34, he summons the multitude with his disciples and he says to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now it's interesting. Because Peter simply is focusing on the suffering, the rejection, and the death. Jesus says, did you not hear what I said? <laughs> I didn't just say the Son of Man was going to suffer, he was going to be rejected, and he was going to die. He circles back in verse 34 and says, if anyone wishes to come after me, resurrection. I'm going to be raised. Do you want to be raised? Do you want to live past this life? Do you want to fulfill your God-given destiny of living life eternal in the presence of God? Do you want to go there? Jesus says, if you want to go there, if, if you'll focus on that last part of me rising again, if you want to go there, this is what you must have to do as well. You must have to follow me. You must have to deny yourself. Now, he's talking to the disciples in the crowd, but he's also talking to Peter. The one who rebuked him. Remember what Peter does three times before Jesus dies on the cross? What does he do? Yeah. He denies him three times. I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus says, if you wish to come after me, you will deny yourself. You will take up your cross. You know how Peter died? On a cross. But not as his Savior did. He said, I will not be crucified like my Savior. I'm not worthy to be crucified in such a manner. He says, and follow me. Jesus circles back to the resurrection to show the most important thing that he said to his disciples. After three days, I will rise again. In essence, Jesus is saying that there is one figure whose acceptance Jesus cares about and whose acceptance we should care about. And that is the Father's. The Father's acceptance. That everything Jesus did was to do the will of the Father. Yes, he would be rejected by all the key players. But he was doing the will of the Father. You will be rejected by all the key players. The church will be rejected by all the key players in the world. But if we're doing the will of the Father then we have His interests in mind. We are aligned with His interests. So here in verse 34, Jesus seeks, you can write this down, Jesus seeks to realign the disciples' focus on the resurrection life. They get distracted, suffering, rejection. He seeks to realign them to God's interests of the resurrection life. This is what your life in the here and now should be focused. It's your north star. It's your north star. It's eternity. And people will say things like, don't be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. I don't think you can be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. I think that by way of our being heavenly minded and on focused on the resurrection, it will impact every conversation, every activity, every emotion, every action that we have here on earth. At least it should. Jesus says so. If you're coming after me, this is what your life should look like. So Jesus seeks to realign the disciples' focus on the resurrection life. Number two, Jesus seeks to realign the disciples' thinking about winning and losing. 
We see this in verse 35. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. If you wish to save your life or if you wish to win in this life, you must lose in this life. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. We have to, our, our thinking has to change. Peter was thinking when he rebuked the Savior, he was thinking, we're going to lose. We're going to lose if you do this. We need them. We need that recognition. We need that power. We need that crowd. We need that influence. And Jesus is saying, you better be willing to lose if you're coming after me. You won't have the crowd. You won't have the community. You won't have the world. Your interests are in the world and not on God's things. You're interested in the things of the world, not on the things of God. The finish line for God, the winning for God, is when we see Him face to face and He says, welcome and well done. And that battle and that race is run and fought here on earth. So we must realign our thinking about winning and losing. And then in verse 36, Jesus seeks to realign the disciples thinking about what's most valuable. He wants to realign your thinking about what's most valuable in life. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gather the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know what is most valuable to God? Your soul. Not your bank account. Not your house. Not your influence. Not your friends. Men. Not your toys. Right? We like those. Not our children, our grandchildren. It's not the mark that you make, the contribution that you make to society. I hear people all the time, I just, I just want to contribute to society. Why? Well, what's the value in that? What do you want to contribute to society? I just really want to grow up and pay taxes. <laughs> it's like, what? Let's have a talk, because that's not a good goal in life. This is what God wants. This is what God values. It's the human soul. People are not their clothes or their social status or even their foul mouth or the music that they listen to or the art that they appreciate or don't appreciate. That's not what a person is. And it's so hard to see into a person's soul because of all that exterior. But God sees straight through all that stuff. He cuts right through it. And he sees every individual as creating the image of God. And he loves every person. And he desires for every person above all else to be saved. To be saved. Not to be comfortable with the church. To like us. To like our music or our dress or where we meet or anything. No. God desires for every human soul to be saved. That is his main interest in this world and everything that goes on in the world. The saving of souls. And then finally, Jesus seeks to realign the disciples thinking about time and eternity. Verse 38, He comes back because this last section is, is addressing what Peter has said. 
He's going to teach. He's going to unpack the things that Peter just said. And he comes back to being ashamed. Verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. He's getting back to what Peter did. Peter took him aside, rebuked him. You can't say those things. Could his disciples have been ashamed of what Jesus said about what was going to happen? Maybe. He says, but here's what you're not thinking about. You're not thinking about the time that actually matters most. And that is eternity. And if you're ashamed of me here, if you're so distracted about the world and the things of man, and you're thinking like just humanly speaking all the time, like Peter was, if, if that's where you're always at, you're going to be ashamed of the gospel this side of heaven. You're not going to share it. You're going to tiptoe around it. You're going to walk on eggshells around your friends. When you go to church, your pastor's not going to talk about it. He's not going to preach it. Because it doesn't draw a crowd. It doesn't build consensus in the community. It doesn't get the community influencers on the same page so that we're all going the same direction. It doesn't do that. The gospel doesn't do that. It's offensive. It's abrasive at times. But Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this generation, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels on that day when everything is wrapped up and we're no longer here doing what we're doing, but we're answering for what we did. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of the gospel, if you're ashamed of what God is interested in, souls, then I will be ashamed of you on that day. That's pretty heavy. Peter was convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, folks. The Messiah, the Christ. But when Jesus spoke clearly about His plan and purpose, Peter became unhinged. Peter had his own plans for Jesus. And they did not entail suffering, rejection, or death. But the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Jesus was exactly what the Father had planned. It was His main interest. It was the only way that Peter and you and I could ever possess the most important thing we could ever gain. Eternal life. The salvation of your soul and my soul. And sometimes we can get so distracted by the things of life and our plans that we fail to prioritize the gospel for our own souls and the souls of others around us. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't recoil from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your own soul. Don't try to fit Jesus into your life agenda. He won't fit. He will only turn your world upside down. That's what he's in the business of doing. Don't be ashamed to suffer. Don't be ashamed to lose friends. Because you will. You'll miss out. You'll miss out on jobs, relationships, marriages. You'll miss out on financial opportunities. You'll miss out on a lot of things. But your soul, your soul depends on the gospel. 
as the Lord has so graciously given us this time called today. Realign your interests in the person and work of Jesus. Realign your interests in the gospel. Amen.